Hello, my name is Chris Ryan. My name's Andy Greenwald. And we are the co-hosts of The Watch, a pop culture podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. We are on Mondays and Thursdays. We mostly talk about TV, movies, music, pop culture. Jeremy Renner, house flipping, the papacy, Reese Weatherspoon dancing at wedding videos. We used to talk about Kanye West. He's, he's in the like timeout corner right now, though. Never, ever talk about Christine Baranski. You can listen to The Watch on Mondays and Thursdays on SoundCloud, iTunes, anywhere you get podcasts. Subscribe now. And thanks for listening. It's a good hang. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the gaming podcast from Channel 33. I am Ben Lindbergh, a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, Blizzard hasn't banned him for hacking, so he must just be that good. Jason Concepcion. Hello, Jason. It's high noon, fellas. <laughs> have you played? So, wait, have you done it yet? Have you gotten Overwatch, into Overwatch update yet? of the week? <laughs> Let's go. Okay, so last week I promised that this would be the week that I removed that little strip of adhesive from the side of the box that prevents you from opening the case. I did do that. I went one further. I took the disc out. I put it into the drive. <laughs> wow. I installed Overwatch. So there is now evidence of Overwatch on my Xbox One. And then just as I was about to play, I got hit with a 13 gigabyte update. And that was just just one bridge too far for me to cross this much. week. Well, yeah. I'm, Next I'm, week. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Instead, I played Papers, Please, belatedly. Oh, man. It was uh, good preparation for, <laughs> for, for, our current, <laughs> for our current predicament. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm doing a um, kind of like a retrospective look at Papers, Please for the ringer. Hopefully for next oh, cool. Week. It's exciting. I look forward to that. Oh, I was just going to talk to you about uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Ben, something that you hate. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about this. <laughs> I bl- probably shouldn't say I hate Dungeons and Dragons on a video game podcast. It probably doesn't oh, doesn't play a- well. You you uh, would prefer not to play it. <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that more accurate? I think what it is is that I was spoiled by video games and yeah. my imagination has yeah. atrophied so that- when I was a kid, I would I would play board games and tabletop games, and I thought it was fun, and I, I got into it. And now I have some friends and family who play, and they congregate sometimes at my house. And it's always like there was an Onion article just this past week, and the headline was, Explanation of Board Game Rules Peppered with Reassurances That It Will Be Fun. which was very accurate in my experience of of watching people play complex board games and i think it really is just that like i have been spoiled by video games that create entire worlds for me and let me just jump into them fully formed and so maybe my life of the mind is not quite what it once was and so you have just played for the first time for the first time ever why have you just gotten into it well because it just seemed so daunting you know like all the time it was one of those things where for, well, first yeah. of all, it is daunting. Any game yes. that has like a like a two hundred page book that comes <laughs> right. with it 
is going to be complex. And so it was always like, just seemed like just too much to get into. And it just never happened. And it kept on not happening. And then video mm-hmm. games, you know, like did take over for a while. But then I had some friends who were just like, hey, you know, we're getting into D&D and do you want to do you want to get into it? I said, sure, we uh-huh. can play. We played over Skype. I kind of like half built my character. He's uh, his name is Ventrix. He's a uh, forest gnome wizard, solitary scholar, I think is like the kind of like subclass. So he's my backstory is, um, you know, like I'm a forest gnome and I like to wander around. And I, one of these sometime in the past, I kind of wandered into a, a library where they put me to work and I discovered some magic books and learned how to be a wizard. And now I'm questing for uh, knowledge. Okay. And uh, long story short, I killed a couple goblins and yeah. um, I got a bear helmet, a helmet made out of a bear skull. And it was fun. You enjoy it? You felt the flow? Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I got to say I enjoyed it. It's, you know, it's like if you've played an RPG, you know, like if you played The Witcher, you played Fallout, then it, you get the hang of it once it's going. It's really mm-hmm. the, the the hardest part is just putting your character together because it's all this terminology that doesn't really make sense to you. But one thing that's interesting is like you don't realize like how how many tropes of RPGs are because of the design of of Dungeons and Dragons. Like pretty much like every RPG you're going to play, you start out with a five percent critical hit rate, and that's because of mm-hmm. the the twenty sided die of Dungeons and Dragons. So you're is this a weekly Skype sesh? How, how often? We're, we're going to try and do it weekly. And okay. I'll, I will update you. And yeah, you've gonna... enjoyed it. You invited me to join. Is this, can I join mid-campaign? Yeah, just like, I'll share you on the Google documents. Okay. <laughs> that it, It's <laughs> extremely thick uh, file of Google documents, and you can try and make your person. And okay. if, if you want to play, you can play. You're really trying to expand my horizons. The role of the dungeon master, I guess I didn't really appreciate like how important it is. Oh, yeah. My soon-to-be brother-in-law is uh, just like a big-time dungeon master, and he takes it extremely seriously. Yeah, it's like, it's like a... They're very serious about their craft. Mm-hmm. Like we had, our guy was very cool and he did multiple voices and stuff. Oh, wow. Really got into it. Okay. Yeah. I will possibly have my first Overwatch experience and my first genuine <laughs> D&D experience in the same week. Big no, week you for won't. me. I don't believe nah, it. I might go one for two. <laughs> Okay, so we are doing a a one guest show. We're going to talk to someone who is trying to preserve video game history. So we are joined now by Frank Cifaldi, and I don't even know how to introduce you because you've done a little bit of everything. It seems like you've been a game developer, you've been an editor, you've been a writer for- Astronaut, (laughs) an NFL superstar, yeah. You only included the highlights in your Twitter (laughs) avatar, though. The, The editor of gaming publications made it over. Astronaut and football star, a game, but a game historian, yeah, a curator, archivist, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sure. yeah, I, I, I call myself uh, an archivist and a historian, and and by that I mean that's what I put on my business card. Yeah, I guess you can call yourself what you want because <laughs> there there aren't a lot of people doing this, right? Which maybe we'll we'll get into, but you are most recently, I guess, you have founded or you are in the process of founding the Video Game History Foundation, and. If you go to gamehistory.org and read about it, it calls itself a charitable organization dedicated to cataloging, digitizing, and preserving the history of the video game industry and the culture it spawned, which sounds like a a pretty broad mandate. There's a, a lot included under that umbrella. So 
give us the mission statement, I guess, other than the one I just read. Well, my God, it's, it hasn't been formalized yet, but I'll, I'll do my best elevator here. Really what the Video Game History Foundation is focused on is making sure that historians and researchers have what they need in order to be able to tell the story of video games. You know, so I've been archiving video game history on an amateur basis, I guess you could say, since the late 90s. And and I started off as, you know, a, a, a ROMs guy. I was the guy that, that was like taking Nintendo cartridges and, and taking the ROMs off of them and putting them on the internet. I was a pirate. My, my video <laughs> game industry career started as a pirate. Um, but, you know, I recognized early on that that this was not this is not just a fun pursuit. We were saving history. And I sort of formed my career around that. And as you mentioned, I used to edit video game websites. I used to be a journalist, although I, someone once told me you never really stop being a journalist. And, and, and I do feel that. Uh, but, you know, I know the struggle that one has trying to piece together video game history with the limited resources that are out there. Um, so the focus of this nonprofit is just making sure that, you know, anything that's volatile or in danger is is saved somewhere, that we're digitizing whatever we can, that we're, you know, collecting promotional material and, and so that you can contextualize a game and, and know how it was, you know, sold and presented at the time. And, and we're building a digital archive just to make sure that that stuff is around and available. And then our sort of secondary goal is to also make sure that museum pieces end up in museums. We're not a museum ourselves. I have zero interest in maintaining a public space or paying rent or selling tickets. Uh, I just want to make sure stories can be told. So that's sort of the short version of it. That was a little longer than an elevator pitch. But... <laughs> it's, a, it's a tall building. Yeah. I was watching uh, your talk at the uh, Game Developers Conference 2016 about emulation. It's really fascinating. Thank you. Where you talk about emulation as a vehicle for uh, saving and preserving these these old games. Could you kind of? It's all right if you go on for a while, but could you uh, <laughs> just talk about that a little bit? Because you, you brought you brought up something that I had never thought about, which is that porting an old game is actually not the best way to save the game in its original form. I, I believe my words were by nature a port is right. a derivative work. I, I had not. I had really. I had not thought about it that way. But could you explain what you mean? Well, okay, it's. It's hard without getting too deep into the weeds, right. but a video game is, you know, it's coded, it's engineered for a specific platform or platforms. Uh, let's use the Nintendo Entertainment System as, as, our, as our basis here. So you make a game for the NES, you know, it's written in 6502 assembly, which is not a thing that, you know, your PlayStation 4 understands. I guess deep at its core it does, but you can't run a game that way. And the idea of taking that assembly, that, that code that was written specifically for a system that took advantage of its quirks, of its video timing, mm -hmm. you know, of its graphical limitations, uh, the idea of porting that to a new system, yeah, you can do it. And yeah, if you spend a long time on it, you're you're going to make it more or less like the original but from my perspective and from our perspective at Digital Eclipse, that's not that's not the original game. That's a port. That's a remake because it is very difficult, if not impossible, to replicate a game exactly by porting it to a different language. And in a lot of cases, especially with these older games, 
you're going to introduce bugs. You're going to introduce some inconsistency with the audio uh, is a big thing. You're you're gonna you're gonna work around limitations and 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 not have it exactly the way that it was back then. And I feel that video games are worth republishing in their original format, warts, quote unquote, and all. And I think that if if you port a game rather than emulate it you run the risk of introducing new bugs. You run the risk of accidentally fixing bugs that are actually advantageous. You yeah. know? <laughs> like, you know, that that people rely on that 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 the play the games extensively to, to get through or to speedrun or whatever. You really run that risk. And if you emulate instead of porting, what you're doing is you're not porting the game. You're basically porting the system. You're 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 creating a, a digital representation of the system that this code ran on and then you just feed it the code and the game works exactly the way it's supposed to be if the engineers who've worked with me are listening to this i'm sorry for simplifying that so much because like you still got to get in there and tweak it and 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 work on it but you know that i think emulation is is the best the safest the most reliable tool for getting old games to run again and I think my big takeaway at that talk at GDC last year, and thank you for watching that, I'm very proud of it, is that we need to stop thinking of emulation as a as as a means of of piracy, which is kind of what we think of it as. You know, that's that's what that's what you use to download illegal ROMs you, that I provided you in the '90s, as uh, as, <laughs> as we all might have. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? You know, we think we 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 think of emulation as being synonymous with amateur piracy, but I think we need to think of it as no emulation is the equivalent of what a a codec is for movies. It's just right. a way of taking that information and and playing it without like it, it'd be like saying like a video codec, like watching a a, a film digitally is is wrong it's piracy and you should like get a vcr and hook it up to your computer it's stupid you know <laughs> and 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 uh, emulation to me is a video codec for video games or you know the vice versa the, a video codec is a film strip emulator for movies seems to me with um there's so many interesting uh like dead ends in video game history from from the early days of video games old prototypes weird porn games uh things of that nature <laughs> is it actually getting harder to do what you do with the kind of explosion of indie games and there's so many more uh, the tools to make games are so much more available now to so many more people than they were in the 80s and 70s when you know there's all these weird games but there's really was only a small number of people making them yeah so you say indie games as, as presenting maybe a new challenge and and I don't think of of indie uh, by the way I hate that word it doesn't mean anything yeah, I, anymore well, I know. but it's, but, but, I know it's, what but it's you the mean. common it's the yeah it's the common yeah. it's the common, common lexicon so yeah, for yeah, yeah, yeah. smaller games but that's not what scares me what scares me more is games that have some online component that that require uh. an internet connection more than that that like require a community you know right. in, in order to play right like right. Warcraft, like an MMO, or like Asheron's Call shut down. Yeah. I think I think yesterday, right? And how do you preserve Asheron's Call? Do you take you know that executable game and like host it on a new server somewhere? Is is that Asheron's Call? I I think Asheron's Call was 
its player base at the time. It's an MMO. It's the people you play with. Uh, shouts to my friend Jason Booth, who worked on Asheron's Call, by the way. Oh, right on. <laughs> I hope he's got something else to do. Um, <laughs> but like the idea of preserving... Okay, so we're talking about older stuff, and that stuff's easy. You know, like if, if it's if it's on a ROM cartridge, just taking the ROM off of it is the game. You fully replicated that game. Uh, you can't replicate the idea of Asheron's Call. That's like that's like replicating a game of baseball. You know, like it, it's an event that happened, and you and you can't. You know, all you can really do is document what happened. You can't you can't preserve it as a game. You have to preserve it as an event, and and that's really tricky. And I'm going to go now on my Farmville rant that I usually go on. How do you preserve Farmville? <laughs> um, you know, think what you will of Farmville. Do we, must, must we preserve Farmville? Hey, those who forget Farmville are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Farmville is, is, is a big piece of video yes, game history. It is true. representative of you know, the social game movement that happened and is sort of still happening. It like, like Farmville is, is the biggest example of that time where everyone on Facebook was like, yep. you know, sending you like game requests. Like that was a big piece of history. How do you preserve Farmville? I have no idea. You know, again, it's like, you can't, you can, maybe replicate a playable game that has the features of Farmville and, you know, like, like take an actual binary Farmville and make it playable forever somewhere. But like, I don't know, which version is that they update that game every day, you know, like which, which one is the true Farmville? Is it, is it the last one? Is it the first one? Is it one randomly in the middle? And even then it's like, like Asheron's call, I think Farmville loses a lot without context. It lo like, do you replicate all of Facebook? You know, do you like, <laughs> do you like make fake bot ants that send you requests? <laughs> you know, ants with an, with a U is what I meant there. Not, <laughs> not um, you know, if you, like, like, do you replicate your mom in robot form, like asking you for carrots or whatever? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you preserve Farmville? I, I don't know the answer to that. And, that. and that's a really big challenge. And it's something I got to be honest with you guys that, as a foundation, like we're not even really looking at yet. That's that's some far reaching stuff. And and that's just that's just a matter of scope for us right now, because the foundation I'm the employee, you know, and, <laughs> and I have and I have a board of directors and uh, I'm and we have no funding, more importantly, yet. So that's the kind of challenge that like I can see us tackling one day. But as of right now, we're sort of focused on digging out the things from the early days that we feel are in danger. Well, when you read about, say, film preservation, you start hearing about cellulose and acetate and yeah. physical degradation of the actual film stock. And, you know, like you just won't be able to watch the movie anymore. It won't exist anymore anymore. Is yeah. that a concern for video games whose history obviously doesn't go back quite as far? Is that something that you are worried about? Yeah, I, I, th I think what we were just talking about, the, 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 the thought of online experiences decaying is, is a pretty good analogy to that. But even, you know, offline games that were shipped in a box that are just a game that you install and play, I think a lot of those are in danger. Like something I'm really concerned about that I don't, see a lot of people talking about is floppy disk games. And I'm not saying that that there's not a lot of those that have been pirated and, and are around, but the problem is a lot of those games 
and you guys might be old enough to remember, were cracked. You know, these yeah. were like piracy groups took the disc and and ripped it and altered the code in order to make it work. And they would often add things to it. Like they'd add a little intro about themselves and, you know, give shout outs to punk boy 69 or whatever, and, you know, <laughs> like, and, and, and th those cracks, don't get me wrong. Those cracks are great. Those cracks are video game history and those should be preserved too. But what I think is really unfortunate is that clean rips, you know, untainted, rips of floppy disk games are extremely rare you know like you can download and, and it's not just the cracks either it's it's a lot of these discs when when you played and saved you were saving data directly onto the disc so like the first time you play a game you forever tainted that disc it is no longer a pure copy of that game and a really really good example of that you know, we think of the Oregon Trail, you know, as it's, it's one of the most popular games ever made, the Apple II version. It was in classrooms everywhere. I played the heck out of it myself. If you download the copy of the Oregon Trail that you can get through traditional, you know, piracy means online, or if you emulate it on, you know, the Internet Archive or whatever, that has someone's save file in it. And <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you guys remember the game, but like when. When someone in your party dies, uh, they they put a tombstone on the map, and you type in you know your tomb what what you want on the tombstone. And uh, when players you know subsequently play off that disc, they'll they'll see the tombstones of those who have come before them. Uh, the the copy you get online of the Oregon Trail has a tombstone in it where someone has has written uh, and misspelled both words, I believe, pepperoni and cheese on a tombstone <laughs> which is really funny you know it's it's really cool and like yes that's a piece of history that should be preserved that's neat but like our copy of the oregon trail is uh, is impure and that is really scary to me and you you were talking about you know celluloid rotting uh which it does and it's also very flammable and and there's a lot of those sort of dangers in film and 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 I kind of think that data decay like that is is what's uh, scarier to me with games. Even, you know, films in a lot of ways are harder because there weren't as many copies, you know, made of the films. But with games, it's like, yeah, there were a lot out there. But the only way to get a clean copy of a lot of these games is to find a shrink-wrapped, never-used you know, a copy of it and, and, uh, and use modern archiving tools to, to get it off. And, and I fear that for a lot of games, especially the more obscure ones, I, I don't think we'll ever have a clean, untainted copy of them. So how do you prioritize as the only full-time <laughs> member of the Video Game History Foundation attempting to preserve all of video game history? Yeah. Seems like a tall task. How do you well, go back to okay, where wait, to start? Well, I'm going to correct you. I, I don't. I, I don't <laughs> think it is within our 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 goals to preserve the entirety of video game history. My God, what kind of pressure are you putting on me? Um, well, what we're you're right. We have to prioritize, and for the foundation specifically, you know, first of all, I'm what I hope to be the first of many like-minded organizations, but what we are focusing on right now is just identifying projects with finite ends and and meeting those goals. So like, for example, one of my projects right now is tracking down material that was sent to the press. 
this is not something and by the way like I, i'm kind of quickly transitioning into a, a different area of preservation so i'm going to give a little intro to this we're talking about preservation as copying a game's data and making sure that data is available i think a video game is more than that playable code i think a video game is all the context that surrounds it i think a video game is the people who made it i think it's the packaging it's it's the ephemeral materials, the documentation, it's the, you know, like the original design documents and things like that. Like if you watch like the Casablanca Blu-ray and I have many times and, and, you know, there's, there's commentary track from Roger Ebert where he's able to reference like, you know, cut scenes from the film and studio correspondence and like reports of, of the day the, the, the movie premiered and what theater it premiered in and things like that. And, that is really difficult to do for a lot of video games. Um, so, you know, that a big focus of ours is not necessarily like, you know, sucking ROMs off cartridges anymore, though we still do that. I was literally doing that this morning. Um, but getting that ephemeral material safe as well. So one of my projects, I was saying this earlier, is tracking down material that was sent to the press. So when I worked at 1UP in the office formerly known as Ziff Davis at the time, I'd straight up say it. I, 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 I straight up stole a bunch of press discs that were, that were just... Um, Statute of limitations. Know, they, they, yeah. Well, they were, they were going to get tossed out. And when I say press discs, I mean like... You know, a, a PR person would send to, you know, back then it might have been EGM or whatever, a, a, a CD or a DVD or a zip disk. I've ripped 100 zip disks from Ziff Davis of assets to use in the magazine or on the website or whatever of, you know, high resolution artwork, press releases, you know, sometimes trailers, things like that, that in a lot of cases just were never published by anyone. But even when they were like... IGN, for example, is a site that's been around forever and they still have, you know, all the screenshots they've ever uploaded for the most part. But like you go back to those early days, they're compressed, you know, they've got watermarks on them. And I think this material can tell you a lot about a game that that you wouldn't know otherwise, especially like screenshots of a game before it's done. You can kind of see things that were a little different and and be able to piece together maybe like a narrative of, of how the game's development changed over time you know we talked about unreleased games for a second back there but like a lot of this press material is the only record we have for games and that stuff is really important uh so one of our projects is digitizing all of these assets and making them searchable and available and and uh you know, doing outreach and, and trying to track down as much of this as might still be out there, you know, hoping that there were some pack rats among us who actually held on to this stuff. Even I didn't, you know, like even I, as someone who got in this industry because he cared about it so much that he wanted its history saved, even I, when I got press discs, just tossed them. Cause like, no, I didn't think, I didn't care. I didn't think anyone would care, but, but this stuff is, is really valuable in order to, you know, if you're going to piece together a story of, of a game and, and, and the context surrounding it. So, you know, that's one of our projects, finding actual pre-release copies of games and digitizing those is, is another project. I, I maintain a fairly extensive um, library of uh, periodicals related to the video game industry. Um, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I was looking at the Twitter account for 
the foundation at Game History Org and someone was tweeting at you, hey, I have a, a huge stack of early 2000s Indonesian video game magazines <laughs> and there's a big picture of them. And he's like, do you want them? And you're like, sure. <laughs> so how do you uh, store all this stuff? Where's it going to go? I mean, right now it's my living room and a storage unit, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's just right now, you know, we, we have hopes of, uh, fundraising enough to, to maintain a, a small office space. So, and that's, you know, just, just another one of our goals though, is, is maintaining a reference library out here on the West coast. Cause, um, I don't know how much you guys have looked into the museums that exist already, but, there's the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, which is, you know, it's it's sort of traditionally a toy museum, but they have a library with librarians uh, on staff, <laughs> and uh, they've been focusing on video games for the last decade or so, and they've got uh, a really extensive collection of, of video game magazines and books and strategy guides and things like that, that if you're on the East Coast, you can go there. The National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas is sort of the middle of America, and they've got, uh, they've got you know, another library of, of uh, comparable size, if not larger. So I, I want to build one here on the West Coast. And I've already, I think I might have one of the biggest, if not the biggest private collections of video game magazines going back to like 1979 or something with with video magazine and uh you know i i, I that stuff is is just invaluable for for looking back uh and, and being able to tell these stories and so you know that's that's another one of our foundations of the foundation is uh building up this library and, and making sure that's accessible in some way someday not yet you're not allowed in my living room but um <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're 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 gonna figure that out hopefully, and you know we'd love to digitize them too, and that's that's that is a tremendous challenge. I don't know if anyone uh, besides me in this room right now has ever tried to scan a magazine, but by God, that takes forever. <laughs> I don't have time for that, but you know that's something we hope to solve too, is figuring out. You know, how do we get these things digitized and, and OCR'd so you can search for this material? You know, it's something I don't have the answer for right now, but I'm I'm positioning myself to make it literally mine or someone else I pay's job to figure that out. Right. And that's what we're doing. It seems to me that emulation is the best solution that we have in, in terms of kind of passing on games in an active way to coming generations. But how do you deal, since we're interest, so interested in fidelity, how do you deal with changes in equipment, you know, uh, games that were originally played on CRT screens and had, you know, different controllers and, that, and things like that? And the second part of my question is, uh, what's the oldest game that you've played in its original form? Yeah, that would be Space War from wow. 1960, 62. When was Space War? They talk about that as the first video game ever, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Space War ran on a PDP-1 computer and was coded uh, at MIT back in 1962. And if you go to the Computer History Museum right now, and God knows how much longer this is possible, you can play Space War on the only functioning PDP-1 left in the world with its author who volunteers on weekends. Wow. So <laughs> if you're if you're anywhere near the Computer History Museum, get over there on, on, on a weekend. Steve Russell 
will demonstrate Space War to you, and you can play the first video game against its creator. Uh, so that is the oldest video game I've played on real hardware. Beat that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is the oldest one possible right now. You can, you can play a replication of, of, of Tennis for Two, but it's not on the real hardware. It's on a replication. This is on an actual PDP one. But uh, the other part of your question, I'm going to correct you for a second. Uh, sure. I don't think emulation is the best way to play a game. I think emulation is the best way to republish a game ah. on modern video game hardware. So... I think what you're asking, you were asking about graphical fidelity and like CRTs versus flat screen or whatever. Um, so how do you deal with that uh, in an emulation sense? In an emulation sense. Okay, gotcha. So I shipped a collection called Mega Man Legacy Collection God, a year before last. I guess it's been a while. And we got another one coming out soon that they're going to announce any day now. <laughs> I don't know when. <laughs> I wish I could talk about it, but it's really cool. But what we sort of landed on with Mega Man Legacy Collection in terms of graphics fidelity and artist intent. Okay, real quick, the the systems of the time, the Famicom or the NES or whatever, uh, the video signal it spit out, depending on which model you got, was either over RF, which was the metal screw-in thing, like that we yeah. still use actually for, you still use it for antennas, but like that mm -hmm. was you know how we hook up the games, uh, or composite, which was the you know yellow plug that goes in the TV. Both of those are extremely uh, lossy formats. So internally, in the guts of your Nintendo, you're, you're, the the it, it's it's creating a perfect you know razor sharp pixel image or whatever. But it it has to get pushed through this you know all this graphical processing stuff and and through this cable and and that cable itself kind of destroyed that signal in a way. And by the time it got to your TV. It was no longer like it looks like in an emulator or whatever. It's it's like fuzzy and blurry and colors bleed and and there's dot crawl and sort of weird waviness and stuff. And that's just how games looked back then. I remember the first time I went from composite to S video. Oh which yeah, I think, it changed I think my life. It was like yeah, it really yeah. did. Like it was like either with N sixty four or Dreamcast. I remember. I think I was playing Crazy Taxi on Dreamcast. Actually, my main cable broke, and I didn't even really know that other cables existed. That there right. were other options. Yeah. I didn't even the pay attention was to this stuff. Video game cable. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then I brought home this S video cable, and suddenly everything was so sharp and yeah. clear. And I feel like it completely made me into someone who cared about tech stuff and gadgets and oh, totally. like, displays. I, I yeah, think that absolutely. changed everything. Yeah, me too. It was, it was GameCube for me specifically. It was, was my mm -hmm. first S video. But the point is that that lossy, blurry image format, I think there's a really compelling argument that the artists who worked on these games were targeting that lossiness. I think that in a lot of cases, you can make a very clear argument that that some some graphical decisions were made because, for example, like dithering colors when right. you, when you sort of do a checkerboarding pattern, very common on the Sega Genesis because after you spit out that dithering pattern to a TV over a composite, you would actually like create a color or or sometimes a transparency effect that the that the the hardware wasn't actually capable of doing, but but the the video signal itself could sort of through its lossiness uh, create like you you could you could make the games look like they had more colors than they actually did. You could you know Sonic One for the Genesis, you know the original Sonic the Hedgehog is a really good example because the waterfalls in the first stage 
are dithered in such a way where on a CRT television over composite, uh, you actually get a rainbow effect. But if you actually just look at the pixels, it's just some blue checkerboarded pixels. So, you know, I, th- I think there's a really compelling argument to say that games should be presented in the way that most consumers would have seen them at the time. I think there's an equally compelling argument that games should be as clean and clear as possible, you know, sort of superseding the way they were at the time. And in a way that like, I don't know, Star Trek, the next generation should have been in HD to begin with, right? Like, like they had to go back and remaster that. Like, I think that's that argument. I think both arguments are valid. So at least for our approach at Digital Eclipse, doing these commercial products like Mega Man Legacy Collection, like artist intent was always at the forefront of our minds. And um, because there's no clear answer to that, the only thing we could really do is just offer users the option. So we have an option called TV mode, which sort of simulates composite. And then we have one called monitor, which is kind of an in-between where it's like we do the scan lines of a computer monitor or like an RGB monitor, like I play, <laughs> or like an arcade game, for example. So you get like clean pixels, but with the scan lines. And then we have just straight up, here's the pixels looking the way they're supposed to. And quick tangent also uh, on that note is that a lot of people, especially if they've only played these old games on emulators, don't understand that while on an emulator you're looking at pixels that are perfectly square these systems actually on a crt tv would stretch to a specific resolution so like nes pixels weren't perfectly square they were like eight wide by seven tall or something like that and so that's that's something that we considered extremely important for for artistic intent is making sure that mega man looks as chubby as he's supposed to (laughs) (laughs) um so that's a big part of that but you know, you, I get really deep into the weeds with this stuff because I don't believe that 1080p is a high enough resolution to uh, display these images uh, the way they were meant to or <laughs> to simulate a composite television. Uh, I just don't think there's enough resolution there. I think if you're actually going to simulate a, a composite signal, you need at least 4K. So there's not enough resolution for the resolution to be bad? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) There's also not enough resolution to make the pixels exactly the width they're supposed to be without doing some bilinear stretching that makes them not completely razor sharp. You actually need 4K to do an NES screen exactly the way it's supposed to be with zero blurriness. So there's some minor compromises you have to make to to display these games in 1080p. But that said, like that's really getting deep into it. Like like I, th- I think the effects we're able to do are a pretty good. I won't say simulation because it's not a technical simulation. It's more of a pretty good artistic representation of what it's it sort of looked like back then what's your greatest find or or ah. <laughs> your your greatest preservation i guess maybe the one that brought you the most attention was unearthing <laughs> desert bus and everything that that led to but what's oh, sure. just personally the thing you're happiest about being able to either preserve or bring attention to or even just okay. discover yourself so desert bus is, is a really good one like you said that that was part of a sega cd game that never shipped called pen and teller smoke and mirrors obviously a game designed with pen and teller the, the the magician comedy duo and yeah desert bus you know went on to spawn this fundraiser where people play this 
you know, intentionally terrible game forever to raise money. And, and that's great. And that's, that's a really good example too, of, of how you can't determine what's important to preserve, what's going to be important to people. Cause who would have known that desert bus would have raised millions in charity? Like you, you don't know. So you, you, you just got to preserve whatever's out there and make sure it's available. A find I was really proud of more for just like, cult classic reasons was an nes game called bioforce ape <laughs> bioforce <laughs> ape was a game that was previewed in nintendo power and only in nintendo power and they had a couple screenshots and it was it was a game about a monkey that gets mutated into like a giant wrestling gorilla wearing a diaper that like runs around body slamming like alligator people. It was considered a hoax or something like that, wasn't it? Well, okay, the the the, the Nintendo like the game itself, no, no one ever thought that was a hoax. But in I, I want to say like 2004 or something like that, on a on a collector's community forum called Digital Press, uh, someone to, to sort of make an artistic statement on the nature of collectors hoarding prototypes versus archivists wanting to actually save them and make them available to people he made a fake bioforce ape cartridge that was fairly convincing looking um and he created screenshots that looked pretty much like the game in nintendo power enough to where it fooled people but as he was going he just kept making the screenshots more ridiculous just like (laughs) just like testing his limits so He's like, I found a, I found a fart power. If you, if you hold up and press B, and in, and in his screenshot, <laughs> in his screenshot, not only is Bioforce Ape farting, he's like farting so hard that the graphical tiles in the background mess up and start displaying like ASCII values instead. And, and like, the most famous example is he's like, I got to the last boss and it's this butter monster. And like he had, he had this butter monster, uh, like, well, anyway, the Bioforce, he punches the butter monster in the face and says, eat communism. (laughs) (laughs) And like, there's a picture of Chelsea Clinton in there, I think. Like he just kept doing this weird stuff. And like, there is this extensive argument between both sides where it's like, if you, you need to back up this game. It's the only copy of the game. If you don't do that, this game is in danger of disappearing forever. And that's that's crazy. You, you have this responsibility. And the other side, the collector side going, you can't put this data on the internet because your antique will be devalued and no one will want to pay you money for it. And, and games are more special if no one can play them. And like, fuck those guys. I don't know if I could curse here, but, but, but fuck those guys. And, and, and as this argument's happening, he, he smashes his fake prototype with a hammer and breaks it apart and says that it's causing too much, you know, strife in this community. And he has to destroy this game. And everyone's like, no, you destroyed BioForce Ape. It can still be repaired. Anyway, that was the hoax. It was hilarious, but there was a real game. <laughs> and uh, I managed to get a copy out of Japan. And uh, despite everything I just said, the actual game is probably weirder than the hoax. <laughs> and I'm very proud of it. <laughs> but I want to talk about something that's happening to me right now, just along those lines, because this is just a really interesting, weird moment in my life. So talking about unreleased NES games, and that was my focus for a long time. I found it at a website called Lost Levels that a lot of people still know me from, even though I haven't really updated that site since like 2005 uh i've tracked down a lot of unreleased games mostly for the nes it's just a library i've always been fascinated by i think i think that there are more interesting unreleased games for that system than any other because it was sort of a 
gold rush time for game publishers where you could just put anything on the NES and make millions of dollars. And so they would like they'd make 10 games and then just release five of them because who cares? You know, like like they don't cost that much money to make and we're going to make our money back anyway. And we're only allowed to make five. A, we're only allowed to publish five a year per Nintendo's policies at the time. So they just made a bunch and just whatever stuck on the wall when they threw them, they released. And so there's this weird, hidden, unreleased library of NES stuff that I've always loved. And one of the early things that I uncovered was this Robin Hood RPG for the NES that actually sort of came out. So they, it's, it's this really ambitious RPG with like a day night cycle. And it's like, it's, it's very like computer RPG of the time, as opposed to console in that it just gives you this giant open world and is like, figure it out, idiot. And it's like, it's got like fatigue and, and hunger stats and stuff. And it's just, and like, when you talk to NBCs, there's the, there, there are these giant sprites that make no sense that bounce on the screen. It's just this crazy ambitious RPG that they actually like cut down to almost nothing and released as Robin Hood Prince of Thieves based on the movie. But the original vision was this RPG not licensed uh, by anything. It's just Robin Hood. And a long time ago, we got a copy of it and we backed it up and it's super early and buggy and like it breaks and you can't actually complete it. But I've always really liked it and uh, wanted to like finish this unfinishable game, even though it's impossible. And um, I very recently, as in like three days ago, finally, after like 10 years, got a, a later copy of this game, like a later build that's not mm. as broken but it's still broken. But like, I, I am right now in my life just having this strange experience that I don't know how to put into words where I'm playing this game that literally no one else has. There's no information for on the internet. I can't look it up. No one else has it, so I can't talk about it with them. And the game's broken, so you can't uh, the actually beat it. And and so there's the thing. Like I feel like I'm playing this weird meta game with it. Like I feel like tracking down a later copy was like part of the game. You know, like my <laughs> question. Like I I'm breaking the game in weird ways. Like I like I'll give you an example. Like at the, in the story of the game, I'm supposed to be gathering these ingredients for the old hag who's gonna make a spell for me. So I gotta get the eye of newt and the wing of bat and the the spider eggs and so else i forget so wing of bat you have to kill bats to get them bats are only in this dungeon the only way to get into the dungeon is to get yourself arrested and get thrown in there and if you do you kill a bat right away it's great you have a bat wing the problem is the exit to the dungeon just doesn't work there's no way out of the dungeon <laughs> but that's not stopping me so i managed to like find a way to sort of i don't know if i'm just buffer overflowing the game or what but in, in a specific door in a castle, I managed to sort of backwards warp my way into this dungeon, get the bat wing and escape. <laughs> and I'm going to beat this game. But like, I, I, I don't know. I'm having this, this really strange experience. Like, I, feel, I, I actually emailed the programmer uh, of the game. I found him and I asked him, like, did this game ever get further than it did? Is a copy still out there? Do you, do you maybe have one? And he had this very unhelpful cryptic reply. And I just feel like it's all part of this weird <laughs> like metagame of me trying to beat this game. And what a unique experience. And I'm having such a weird 
weird time beating this strange Robin Hood, beating this unbeatable strange Robin Hood game that only exists in my house right now. This is like a very Ready Player One. Yes, style it is. Story. It totally is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you get your hands on these things then? If it's not coming from the developer, how do you find it? Who who donates it? So Lost Levels specifically, this NES stuff, really a lot of it's just money is the short answer. But what I think we pioneered early on, so when we started, there were collectors who had games that never shipped on cartridge and and they were worth a lot of money and they were unwilling to share the data from the cartridges because, and, and you know, this is fine, this is valid, you can think this way if you want, that, that if this cartridge no longer has a unique game, then its monetary value has been shot. And it's true. This is a provable thing. If you if you take a one-of-a-kind game, an unreleased game, and if you take the data off it and people can now download it and play it whenever they want, the monetary value of this antique just plummets. And so there was a struggle in the early days of of competing with collectors, like trying to outbid them on eBay, you know, just trying to get the stuff away from them before, you know, in our minds, they like put it in a closet and laughed at us or whatever. (laughs) Uh, But I think what we pioneered was, was starting to work with the collectors and find common ground. And the biggest start to that was I basically got very lucky in like 2002 and found a guy in Spain who had this giant cache of, prototype NES cartridges that I think were sent to a magazine or something. And among those were three games that didn't ship. And and I should clarify a little bit that a lot of these unshipped NES games, they got close. You know, they were sent to magazines like, here, review this game. We're going to manufacture it in two months. Uh, actually, never mind. We canceled it. Like that happened. So a lot of these unreleased games just exist on these cartridges that were sent out for review. I lucked out in that I was able to buy like five unreleased games off this one guy for not very much money. And so what we ended up doing as Lost Levels, you know, we pulled our money to buy that. And and uh, what we did was we made deals with, I, actually it was just one collector and, 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 and specifically uh, his name is Jason Wilson who had these unreleased games that we wanted. And it's like, hey, we have these cartridges. We know you like collecting these. We will sell you these cartridges at, uh, for almost no money, which is actually the almost no money that I paid the other guy. <laughs> and in exchange, like you get to keep the cartridge, but we get to copy two more of your games. And so like we just kept building this pool of unreleased games by working with collectors to get them. So that's how we built up. That's how we got most of them was just like negotiating and dealing with collectors. This latest Robinhood build that I got, actually, I just paid someone basically for it i just uh-huh. paid for the second time in my life out of my own pocket and i i by no means am a rich man I have paid two thousand dollars for a broken video game um <laughs> because that's the only way to do it sometimes and by god i'm gonna beat that robin hood game and paying two thousand dollars is part of my weird meta game that i'm living right now <laughs> I, I I had to grind to uh, to level up the game. Okay, I gotta ask you because this is a subject that's always fascinated me. Just the fact that there are playable pornographic games that were produced for both the Atari, I think Custer's Revenge is probably going to be the most famous, and for even more surprisingly for the for the NES games like Bubble Bath Babes and Hot Slots. 
how did those games get past the kind of uh, you know like Nintendo's licensing system and things like that? Well, my friend, you you are you are making a terribly wrong assumption that they actually <laughs> were licensed. Oh, I see, I see. Okay. Yes. So, um, how do they market them then? Is it just like you know, in like a back room of some like shady porn stall? Like, hey, buddy, come here. You want to check out a, a good game? <laughs> uh, so let's go back to Atari first. Okay. So there actually was no concept of being an Atari licensee. So the Atari 2600, the only official Atari 2600 games were made by Atari, and that's it. Activision, iMagic, all those guys, Parker Brothers, those were those had no Atari bearings at all. They didn't talk to Atari. They, like they they were off the radar, unlicensed Atari games, because uh, there just wasn't there was no concept of being a licensee. Uh, so Mystique, which made the adult games on the Atari, uh, actually I think one of maybe two or three companies that did, if I'm not mistaken, you know they they didn't have to pass any kind of certification of any kind. All they had to do was make the product, package it, and sell it. And to answer your question, where was that sold? My understanding is mail order and <laughs> actually in in adult stores. Like you wow. go to adult stores and buy this stuff. In fact, I think that some of the games in later years were discovered in like dusty, crappy old porn shops, you know, like in the back rooms. So Bubble Bath Babes, uh, that was... So Bubble Bath Babes, just for people so they could picture it, it's kind of like Tetris with bubbles and then there's like a naked woman at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, you're you're rotating... I think it's grids of like little clusters of three bubbles yeah. and, and matching up the colors. That was actually a, I believe, Taiwanese game called Soap Panic that they rebranded. Um, <laughs> Soap Panic is a really great name now that I'm saying it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said Soap Panic out loud before, but that's amazing. Um, so that was a company, Panesian, um, and they licensed these games from Taiwan and like no... Again, no Nintendo licensing at all. They were just totally off the radar, and, and they just manufactured and made these things. And for the Nintendo, it was a little more complicated than the Atari. Uh, the Atari, you just put an EEPROM on a circuit board, and it just kind of works. But the Nintendo had a lockout chip to prevent that. Uh, and that was very intentionally because of Atari. Um, Nintendo, you know, when it was getting ready to launch the NES, one of the things that they recognized as having caused the great video game crash of the 1980s that made it impossible to sell video games was just a glut of product. And they wanted to prevent that from happening by putting in place these draconian restrictions on, on who could release games. And, you know, really that came down to how much money did you pay Nintendo for the, the, the pleasure of publishing on their platform right. and, you know, how many games they could release a year and Nintendo, had to actually put their stamp on it, their you know the seal of approval that you still see on Nintendo products. That was that was a program that they invented to make sure that any game that ran on the Nintendo met with met their standards for quality and content. And so they basically invented the licensing program for game consoles that everyone uses now. And that they, and they put in what's called a lockout chip. In the Nintendo, so there's a there's a chip inside the Nintendo, and there's a chip in every licensed Nintendo cartridge, and those two chips have to talk to each other before a game will boot. And so unlicensed companies 
for example, Tengen, that was a division of Atari Games. They actually uh, they got in big trouble because they they, uh, they 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 sort of circumvented the law and and uh, acquired a, a copy of the of the schematics from the patent office or something. But like, <laughs> uh, but companies like Color Dreams and maybe even Panesian, they like someone actually reverse engineered and made a clone of that chip. I don't know. It, it, unlicensed NES crap is is a really interesting topic of discussion that I could go on for a long time. So I'm just going to stop myself. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's just like absolutely fascinating. We got to have you back. Got to have you back on. Yeah, any anytime, any anytime. I will I will talk about the garbage on the Nintendo. I will talk about. <laughs> um, I will talk about my days as a high schooler in the late '90s buying in bulk uh, cartridges <laughs> from Taiwan. Uh, of pornographic Nintendo games to make sure that they were saved. <laughs> I want to put this in perspective. I was in high school importing in bulk pornographic Nintendo games to save them. You had like, the archival I have always impulse. been me. <laughs> <laughs> and I will tell you the story about how I probably uh, caused that company to implode and die. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, good teaser for next time. So people can find Frank on Twitter at Frank Cifaldi. That's C-I-F-A-L-D-I. And can find out more about the foundation at GameHistory.org. There is a mailing list that you can subscribe to so that you'll know when things get started. Is there anything else that people should look at or if they want to help out in some way, is there anything they should do? I mean, we really haven't even gone public. I don't even know why I'm speaking to you guys. Um, <laughs> but we are officially launching as of right now, and this this might change, the first Monday of GDC, which I believe is February 27th. So at that time, that website will have more than that you know, little teaser that I wrote and, and uh, we'll be able to talk more extensively about what we're actually doing and how people can help. But for right now, just go to gamehistory.org, sign up for that email list. And I will, uh, I will tell you before anybody else what we're up to. All right. Great talking to you, Frank. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. So we have come to the end of another episode and I don't know if you got the good news, but Square Enix is continuing to modify Final Fantasy 15, and one of the upcoming updates, you can take the car off-road. Wow, finally. Your favorite video game yes. vehicle of all time. You can now go anywhere you want in it. Very exciting. <laughs> all right, so we are done for today. We'll be back next Friday. Talk to you then. Bye.